the greatest authentication of God's Word and His power is taking a sinner like me and transforming me into a person that can live a life that is pleasing to God. Because without that transforming power that I came to know and understand through His Word, I'd still just be a sinner. Are you looking for meaning or a word from God that's relevant to your life? Are you searching for a better understanding of who God is? Well, you're in the right place. You found the Gary Talks About God podcast. This is a weekly podcast that comes to you from the pulpit of Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. The podcast is hosted by Red Bank Senior Pastor Gary Sanders. Now let's get ready to take that walk through God's Word with our pastor, teacher, and friend. Hey, he's that guy we call Gary. If you have your Bibles... Open them to Second Peter, chapter one. And usually, when we get started, I, I say something like, "Take your Bibles or uh, open God's Word to a particular passage." And I just want to pause on that sentence for just a moment about it being God's Word, because that's going to be the focus, and that's going to frame the message this morning. When you hear that and, and people say the Bible is, is God's Word, all sorts of things run through people's minds, right? Some of the things that people think about is how do you know that it's God's Word, right? How, how do you know this is really what God said, especially since we know that, that men wrote the Scriptures? How then is it actually God's Word? How do you know it's not just a myth, it's not something that's, that's just made up. Well, maybe it's God's Word for you, but it's, it's not God's Word for me. Or, you know, there's some really awful stuff in God's Word, and, you know, there is. I think we saw that when we went through Genesis. There's some stuff in there that just, it'd be nice, just, let's just skip this chapter and go on. Why would God, if He's a loving God, record that stuff? How about all the contradictions that are in God's Word? All right, there, there's a lot of questions when you assert that this book is God's Word. And as believers, we probably had those questions at some time as well. You, you know, maybe it's been long enough ago that, that we don't remember those questions, but we had it. Or, or maybe we don't think about it until we come to a passage that is particularly difficult or troubling and we... It kind of maybe creeps in just a little bit. Is this really God's Word? Unbelievers sometimes ask these questions, and they're good questions to ask, good questions that, that need to be answered, and we should be able to present an answer to that. We shouldn't be, as believers, afraid of those questions. How do we address those questions? How do we know that this is indeed God's Word? Well, as Peter was writing, he is faced with that same question. As he is writing against the false teachers and their false doctrine, the question is, is kind of brought to Peter's mind and, and presented to him, how do we know, Peter, that you are speaking for God and what you wrote is God's word to us and not just something that you want to say? So Peter writes to confront that and to establish the veracity of God's Word. To say that what I'm writing, what I'm saying, is indeed 
God's Word. And this is why you need to pay attention to it. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 through 21, this is what Peter writes. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star, star rises in your hearts." Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this morning, as we look at these verses, I want you to notice four ways that Peter authenticates God's Word. And the first one is this. God's Word is authenticated by the Apostles' testimony. That, that's where, where Peter starts. Peter is at the end of his life. He says, the time for me to put off my body will be soon. And he wants to remind them to be firmly established in the truth of God's Word and not the false teaching of the false teachers. Peter does not want them to wobble in their faith, right? And Peter can speak from experience, can he not? I mean, Peter, I think the greatest thing that, that God did for us was call Peter as an apostle, right? I, I really believe that because I think most of us can identify with Peter more than any of the other apostles. I'm so glad that, that Jesus called Peter because we see his calling, but we see those moments where his knees kind of get wobbly, where he doesn't know what to do. And so Peter says, hey, you know what? I'm at the end of my life. And, and, and we know this. We've talked to people who are older than us who, who basically say, look, I learned from experience. And I messed up. And I want to teach you what I learned to spare you from making the same mistake. That's what Peter's saying. Look, I don't, I don't want you to wobble. This... What I'm writing to you is, is God's truth. Remember the truth that we have. And Peter says that the word comes to us through the prophets and the apostles' testimony. And Peter starts, since he was an apostle, big A apostle. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. He starts with his testimony and the testimony of the other apostles. Look at what he says in verse 16. For we, we did not, he, he says it wasn't just me. I wasn't the only one. There was a whole group of us who saw this, who witnessed this, and we are not following a cleverly devised myth. 
Now, I went just so that I would have the actual definition to look up what the Webster's Dictionary said about myth. And it says, a story or a traditional story of ostensibly historical facts that serves to unfold part of the worldview of a people or explain a practice, belief, or natural phenomenon. Now, the key word in that definition is the word ostensibly. As if when you read that to say, ah, it's most likely made up, or it's been embellished. It's not historical events. It's maybe started as this, and it's turned into this, and we have it now as this story over here, right? You, you know the traditional fishing myth, right? Your fish is this big, this big, and then you pose with it on Facebook in such a way so it's this big, right? And they think you called a marlin, and you called a sardine, Peter says, we, we didn't follow a cleverly divine, devised myth. We didn't make this up to you. And the part that they did not make up, that Peter is focusing on, the part that the false teachers are latching on, is the teaching of Christ, the teaching of the apostles, that Jesus will come back. Now this is what's going on. Let me try to put this together for you, because he uses a fascinating event in the life of Christ to drive this home. When you go to the Old Testament, and we talked about it at the beginning of our study of the end, right? Before we actually ended up in Revelation, we answered all those big questions. Why must there be an end? Why the fascination? And we talked about the coming day of the Lord. This idea is woven throughout Scripture, and especially in the old time, that there was coming a day of the Lord when God would arrive to judge mankind. At the same time, woven throughout Scripture, was one was going to come in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. So it would make sense that the coming of the day of the Lord would coincide with the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, arrives and he says that, yes, I am the Messiah, however... That final coming of the day of the Lord, that final judgment, is still in the future, and I will be part of that, but it's not going to happen now while I'm on this earth. It'll happen at a future date. So as believers now, as they did then, we look forward to a second coming of Jesus in all His power and all His glory and bring in and usher in the coming of the day of the Lord. The false teacher said, hey, you're just making this up. This isn't really going to happen. If God's judgment did not arrive with Jesus and he said he was the Messiah, then God's judgment is not coming. So therefore, tell me if this sounds familiar, you don't have anything to worry about. Just since it's a cleverly devised myth, live how you want to here and now. Enjoy your best life now, because Jesus is not going to come back. You have nothing to worry about. Peter says, that's not true. He says, it's not true. He says, I saw it. I heard it. I've seen his glory. I, I've seen what he did. I, I know that he is coming back. Because I was with him, and he taught me. Peter says, what I'm teaching, what I'm being inspired to write, is not a cleverly 
devise myth. Now today, we still battle this, right? You go and you just Google Jesus myth, and you will get all kinds of books, articles, what journal entries talking about this Jesus myth. And Jesus wasn't real, and, and, and they're trying to debunk Jesus. And, you know, we can keep some of his good teachings, but we'll, the others are, are not really his teaching, to which I go, at that point, you don't really know. The Bible literally is an all-or-nothing proposition. So while Peter didn't give you this in his verses as he was writing, I want to give you just, just four very quick reasons. All right, why the Bible is not a myth, okay? Just, just four very quick reasons. I know it's not in your outline, but it will be on your screen. One is time, okay? The time factor. There was not enough time between when Jesus died and the New Testament books began to be written for the myth to develop. You need time for a myth to develop. Why? Because if I start writing something that's true that happened 10 years ago, there were people alive 10 years ago that would tell me and, and circulate, hey, it's not true. So for a myth to become a myth, you need a great deal of time between when the events were supposed to have happened and when it started to be recorded. And 20 and 30 years is not enough time. Secondly, the content. The content. The, the, the insistence that, that Jesus was God was an offensive myth to teach. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Stephen stood up and said, Jesus is God? Do you remember how that ended for him? If you don't remember, he was stoned. They killed him for saying Jesus was God. The very fact that John wrote seven different times, Jesus said, I am, was enough to get John killed if they wanted to, but it did get him exiled. You go back through church history, and you look, again, we're, we're appealing to church history and not God's Word, but church history holds that all of the original 12, all of the disciples were martyred for their faith, that they died for their faith. Because of what they wrote. And it was offensive and people wanted to kill them. Details. There are so many details in, in, in God's Word that are really kind of inconsequential to the story, but actually, through their inclusion, verifies the story. You know, like little offhand comments when Jesus was in the boat and goes, Oh, and there were other boats. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with the story, but it, it, it verifies the story. Or when, uh, you know, it was recorded that in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that one of the people ran fleeing naked has nothing to do with the story, but if you were in a garden and you saw somebody run away naked, that's something that you would remember. And you'd put in there. It's just little details like this that, again, just provide the detail to say, hey, this, this is true. But then lastly, the cost. It, it, it did. All the apostles died for their faith. No one would die for a made-up story. You cannot get 12 people to make up a story, hold for it's true, and then die for it. Somebody is going to crack. Somebody is not going to do that. 
but they all did. And Peter writes today, look, it, it was not a myth because we saw it, we experienced it, we lived it. And so for his audience and for us today, this is God's word. And we can be assured of that. But he continued. Secondly, he says that God's word is authenticated by the power of Jesus. He said Jesus authenticates this through his power. Right? And you go through Scripture, you go through the New Testament, and you find all these places where God's power was on display. Right, Even at his incarnation and his birth, God taking on human flesh is a manifestation of his power. The blind to see, the lame to walk, the crippled to be healed, the, the returning of life to Jairus' daughter, calling Lazarus forth from the tomb. Lazarus, come out, commanding the waves to be still, walking on water. And so many more. What? Which one would you pick? Right? Which one would you pick? If you were going to go pick one example of Jesus' power from the New Testament, which one? Well, Peter knows exactly which one he's going to pick. It is the transfiguration. It is where Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain with Jesus and they see him transformed in his glory for just a few moments. Let me read the passage to you. It's in uh, Matthew 17. You can also find it in Mark and Luke as well, but I wanted to go to the Matthew passage this morning. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. It says, And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up high on a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Peter records this account. And he is saying that when he was on top of the mountain with Jesus, that for just a moment, he sees the glory and the majesty of Jesus not contained or veiled by his human body. To the point that he is just, he, he, he is amazed of what is going on. And he sees Jesus, and then he sees Elijah and Moses. And one of the great things about this story is when you read it and understand what's happening, Peter has no clue what is happening at this moment. He kind of sees Jesus and, and kind of Elijah and Moses. He's like, hey, I'm so excited. Let's just make three tents. You know, I don't need a tent. James doesn't need a tent. You know, John doesn't need a tent, but, but we'll make a tent for you, Jesus, and we'll make a tent for you, Elijah, and we'll make a tent for you, Moses, and all six of us will just stay up here together because this is really cool, and I don't care about the other nine at the bottom of the mountain. He, he really doesn't know what is happening. 
And then all of a sudden, God from the heavens speaks. Very much like he spoke at Jesus' baptism, right? He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, I think that's interesting. That at the very end, God says, listen to him. What are they supposed to be listening to? How does this tie together with what Peter is saying? When you go through the New Testament, you go through the Gospels, and you look, you will notice that in all three of the Gospels, the transfiguration immediately, and I mean very next verse immediate. Okay, I don't mean a few verses later. I mean the very next verse immediate follows the declaration that God's kingdom will come in power. Okay? So God says to them, verse 28, Truly I say to you, or this is Jesus, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the man, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And power, in the very next verse, is Peter, James, and John up on top of the mountain, like we saw, and this is why I read Psalm 2, up on the top of the mountain, God's holy hill, being transfigured in all his power and all his glory. The transfiguration was, did not happen just so Peter, James, and John could be really wowed by the brilliance of Jesus in his glory. The transfiguration occurred to give them a glimpse of the glory which is going to accompany Jesus when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. The transfiguration points to the fact and the truth that Jesus is coming back, which is why Peter records it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for just a few fleeting moments, we got a glimpse of the future through, God, through Jesus' power and the transfiguration to verify the fact that he indeed is going to return. But Peter continues. He's talked about his testimony. He's talked about the power of Jesus. And now he goes back to something he's already said before where he says God's word is authenticated by the words of the prophets. The prophets wrote, and we talked about this. He made this argument in the first letter. The prophets wrote, looking forward for you. The prophets wrote so that you could be equipped in your faith, so that you could be assured of your faith. I think this is why in verse 12 he said, Look, I always intend to remind you of this. You know, I, I, I don't want you to forget the prophetic witness of the Old Testament. He says that that prophetic witness is, is more confirmed now. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What Peter is stating again with the transfiguration is that in that moment, verified to Peter all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus was true. I mean, it's not that they were not true, but it was just... Y'all have had one of those moments, right, where you knew something was true, but man, when that confirmation comes in, you just, it, it just makes you feel a little bit better, although it was true then and it's true now, but there was just a, a little bit of confirmation, right? We understand that. Peter says it's, it's, it's been confirmed because the prophecies that were predicted in the Old Testament 
And the prophecies that are, are, are going to come have been fulfilled in Jesus, even though they're not here yet. Just like the prophets promised and it came true, Jesus promised and it's going to come true as well. Peter writes, but pay attention to the prophets. He says they were a lamp shining into a dark place. They were shining God's light into a dark word, world. He says, so pay attention to what they, they have written. And he says, as you pay attention to that, we stand in the line of the prophets so that our word is true as well. But continue to look forward to the day. It says that the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And again, this is poetic language that points back to the Old Testament where Peter's saying, look, look for the day to know that the Lord will bring up a star out of Jacob. He says, but now Jesus has done that, and we believe it in our hearts, right? Because remember what Jesus told Thomas? He says, blessed are you because you have, have believed because you have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He says, look, I saw with my eyes, but you're, you're seeing with your hearts, but you've got to know, you've got to confirm it. Jesus as Lord has raised up in your hearts, and you know this to be true, and it's from the testimony of the prophets. And he continues just to hammer, I mean, Peter just kind of hammers this point home to them. Because he says, look, again, nothing in prophet, no scripture, verse 21, no prophecies ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Everything that the prophets wrote, Peter says, originated with God. Every single thing. You know, you go back and, again, I know that they're, we just call it the Old Testament. For them, it was God's Word. It was everything that they had at the moment. And as they look back to the Torah and everything, they can be confident that one day Jeremiah just didn't wake up and go, hey, you know what? I'm just going to write in some really long-winded verses some prophecies about the Messiah. I think I'll just go along and do that now. Peter writes and says, no, Jeremiah was carried along by the Holy Spirit as he wrote. And, and, and yes, God uses the individual and the individual personality and characteristics of the author to write, which is why Moses doesn't sound like Joshua, and Joshua doesn't sound like Samuel, and John doesn't sound like Matthew, and Paul doesn't sound like James. However, Jesus carries them along, or the Holy Spirit carries them along so that they can produce what God is saying. And Peter does something that's really, I, I find kind of cool here. Again, we are limited by our translation. But if you look in verse 18, where he says, we ourselves heard this very voice born. All right, that, that, that word born it's either born or came, depending on the translation. The voice came from heaven. The voice was born from heaven. Peter uses that same word twice in verse 21, where he says, No prophecy was ever produced. That's the same word. But men spoke from God as they were carried. That, that word carried is the same, same word. You see what Peter is doing in that? He's saying the prophetic word that was written down was the same word that came down from heaven while we were on the mountain. They're one and the same. What spoke, when, when God spoke to us from heaven, it carried the same authority as when God spoke through men and told us to write this down so that you may have it. 
And so Peter takes all of this and he's firmly established the prophetic word as, as God's word. He's pro, uh, firmly established the New Testament is equally as, as God's word. And so Peter says, you know, you, you can believe what this is. You can believe in what I've written because it follows in the line of the prophets. God has interacted with me as an apostle just like he did with the prophets. And this is God's authoritative word. And he says, I need you to listen to it. I need you to pay attention to it. And the reason we pay attention to it, and the reason we know that it's true, and the reason that Peter is trying to drive this home, right? Because remember, Peter is saying, live in light of Jesus' return so it can impact you today. And what we see today then is that God's word is authenticated by a changed life. God's word is authenticated by a changed life. I don't think we can escape who wrote this. Right? I think the more you understand Peter and, and look at him writing 2 Peter and comparing this to the Peter we are presented in the gospel, you see a changed life. Peter was a fisherman. And if you're a fisherman, I'm not saying that you don't, you're not smart. All right? That's not my point. Peter was a fisherman. That's what he knew. He didn't go to school. He didn't have a nice fancy diploma hanging up and, you know, in his boat. Graduated with a fishing degree. All right? he, he was a fisherman. He, he knew how to go out and take his boat out and throw the net over the side and pull in fish. He knew how to bring the fish in. He knew how to mend his nets. He knew how to get the fish ready to go to market. Peter knew how to fish. And then all of a sudden one day, Jesus walks by and tells Peter, hey, throw down your net and follow me. And we watch Peter's life progress, right, till we get to the point where Peter looks at him and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that moment, Peter becomes a new creation. We can see the, those moments where, where he becomes this defender of Christ. Now again, Peter didn't get it all right. We see some wobbly moments in, in Peter's life. But now we're seeing Peter as an older man whose death is imminent, looking back and saying, I'm a new person. I'm in Christ. Peter goes from being the one who fled when Jesus was on trial to the one we are told we know that he was crucified. And again, church history says he was crucified upside down because he did not deem himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner of, as his Lord. Peter became a new creation. God's word is authenticated by a changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Every time a person confesses Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that person is made new. In that moment, a sinner becomes a saint. When the person is called out of the kingdom of, of darkness and into the kingdom of light, 
When Jesus calls a person to his own glory and excellency, excellence in a person's life is changed, God's word is authenticated. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you probably didn't think about this, but that transformation in your life where you no longer live for the things of the world but live for the kingdom of God authenticated God's word. God's word is authenticated when we go out and we live like the believers we are called to be. As we end this morning, I want to reword a statement from a sermon from a couple of weeks ago. To this, the greatest authentication of God's word and his power is taking a sinner like me and transforming me into a person that can live a life that is pleasing to God. Because without that transforming power that I came to know and understand through his word, I'd still just be a sinner. But that moment when he called me out of darkness into light, I wasn't thinking that he was authenticating his word, but in my life that day, he did. You've been listening to the Gary Talks About God podcast. Are you looking for a church? Well, Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church is a community of believers who exist to glorify God and see transform lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find us on the web at www.redbankmbc.com. Also, come visit us on Sunday at 8104 Red Bank Road in Germantown, North Carolina. Did you like this podcast? We put one out each and every week, so don't forget to subscribe. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we thank you for listening.